Victor spent 32 years in prison um, before he was granted a new trial and released in 2014. So for, you know, 32 years, he's knocking his head against a wall, not knowing if he's going to get out. This is Voir Dire, Conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. And I'm your host, Skylar Dom. It's honestly hard to comprehend or face the injustice that our criminal legal system sends innocent people to prison, sometimes for decades. But that is what Lisa Kavanaugh faces and tries to fix every day. She's the director of the Innocence Program at the Committee for Public Counsel Services here in Massachusetts. She'll talk about some of her recent successes exonerating her clients, what causes wrongful convictions, including the fact that forensic science is a lot dicier than what you would see on CSI, and the ways in which the experiences of quote-unquote innocent people can highlight systemic injustices that all participants in the criminal legal system are facing. Here's our conversation. So, Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You've recently won two high-profile exonerations, those of Victor Rosario and Frederick Clay, in addition to many other cases that you've worked on. Can you just tell us what it feels like when that decision comes down and you finally realize that you've done it, that this person gets to go home? You know, it's both amazing and devastating. It's amazing because there's there's sort of nothing more triumphant than getting to be a part of someone uh, being truly free of a wrongful conviction. But I also find myself really pulled down sometimes by the weight of what they've had to go through to get to this point. So it's an interesting mixture of joy and real sadness that come together in this very intense way uh, at at the moment of these exonerations. So you mentioned what they've had to go through. I know it's an incredibly long journey for most of your clients. Can we talk about Victor and Frederick's cases? And why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened and and what the process was like to get to that day? So I'll start with Fred Clay's case. Fred was, he had just turned 16 two weeks before he was taken into custody in this case. It was 1979, and a cab driver was brutally shot and killed in a housing project in Roslindale, Massachusetts. Fred became a suspect um, only because he was one of a large number of young people who hung out in that area, and his photo was included in a photo array, which caused um, which which caused him to be one of several potential suspect candidates that were shown to the first eyewitness. So, um, you know, one of the things that was sort of classic and also devastating is that anyone that that eyewitness had picked out of the array would have become the lead suspect. They didn't have any leads. They didn't have any information. No witnesses were able to describe the people who were seen doing the shooting. Um, But once he was selected by the first eyewitness, who had to be hypnotized before he picked Fred's photograph out, once that happened, it was sort of like the rest was, um, was just this um, stone rolling down a hill and gathering steam. And, you know, eventually a second witness who had seen the shooting also picked him out. Uh, that did not occur until he'd been shown that same array four times, had been incentivized in a number of different ways by the police. 
Um, and we later learned also that this, this second eyewitness was um, severely uh, intellectually disabled, so very highly susceptible to the kinds of coercion that the police were, um, were using in his, uh, in his questioning. And Fred spent, you know, from the very beginning, kept telling people, um, I wasn't there, I didn't do this, I was asleep in my bed at the foster home where I was living. His foster mother came forward right away and corroborated his alibi, as did several other witnesses. All of this got presented to the jury. Fred testified on his own behalf, and it didn't matter uh, because there were these two eyewitnesses who came into court and pointed the finger at him and said, that's the man I saw. That's really the boy I saw. Um, he had an appeal. The, the appeal um, went on for several years. He was represented by the same lawyer who had represented him at trial. And once that appeal ended um, in 1986, 1987, he then went for nearly 20 years without any contact with any lawyer. I've talked to him about what that was like and just being in prison as a teenager. Um, and, you know, during that 20-year period, he... Um, he, he was never visited by any of his siblings. He was the oldest in his family, so he was 16. His next closest in age sibling was 13. Uh, his mother had uh, many problems and died shortly after Fred went to prison. So um, he, he just, all of his connections to family were broken. He had an aunt who occasionally visited him, and, and she was kind of the one person who remained in his life. But basically, all of his connections with the world he had known were broken. Um, and that period uh, after he after his appeal was over was um, you know darker than most of us can imagine. Um, so I think that you know when I think about um, the moment of him walking out of court and being free, I I can't help but also think about all of that time when he was living in darkness and believing that he was going to die in prison. Yeah. So the. Eyewitness identification practices that you talked about in this case, the hypnotizing the eyewitness or showing someone the same photo array four times, um, those seem deeply problematic, right? Um, and I think an average listener might think, oh my God, like, is this an outlier? Is this just a terrible case? Or are these things that are happening commonly or were happening commonly? So they are definitely awful, and um, none of those practices are currently used by the police. Um, hypnosis was, during the time period of Fred's, uh, of the investigation in this case, uh, still being used by police departments. So the Boston Police Department actually had a, uh, a, a police officer who had been trained in the technique of hypnotizing witnesses, and um, there was certainly a belief at that time that it was a legitimate form of investigation practice. Um, what is the, sorry, what's the thought behind that, that it would, like, unlock a different part of your memory, or...? The, th the, the theory um, that was used in this case and that was held out as a viable theory was that witnesses could be induced to a state in which they were effectively able to watch past events as though they were watching them on a television, television screen. It was called the television technique. And so the witness in this case who was hypnotized was literally told that he would be able to hit the pause button to zoom in on the faces of the people he had seen and essentially to slow down the events so that he could watch and, and recall more accurately. That was, the, um, that, that was presented to the jury as 
a legitimate scientific theory. The practices in this case were, you know, particularly bad or something we wouldn't use today. But eyewitness identification is still something that is regularly relied upon in trial today. And I wonder if you could talk about the reliability of of that evidence and whether or not we're setting innocent people up for conviction using that kind of evidence. I think that's that's absolutely right that eyewitness testimony remains uh, a source of evidence that is regularly part of criminal prosecutions. What's happened in Massachusetts, um, and Massachusetts has really been a leader in eyewitness reform, is that um, we've agreed upon a set of practices that are recognized as best practices. And the goal of those is to ensure that at least with respect to how the police interact with eyewitnesses, that as many steps are taken as possible not to contaminate the memory, uh, not to influence the decision that the eyewitness is making, to preserve the earliest possible expression of certainty. Um, But the reality is that many of the things that affect eyewitness memory are entirely out of the control of the police and the system. So all of the variables like how dark is it, how long was the event, um, how far away uh, were the witnesses from the event that they were watching, was it a cross-racial identification, all of these factors that no one can control are always going to be at play and they're always going to be relevant to deciding whether a, a particular identification is reliable. So I think that Today, the courts are much more sophisticated in Massachusetts in how they treat eyewitness testimony, but it remains the case that, um, you know, in my view, if a case is premised entirely on a stranger identification, we should be very worried. It's not that common, I have to say. Um, You know, what made Fred's case unusual and also compelling to the prosecutor is that there was literally no corroboration. There was absolutely no physical evidence. There was no evidence of motive. He had an alibi. So it was truly a pure mistaken identification case. Um, And, as it turns out, there was evidence of another person who should have been treated as a more serious potential suspect and who was effectively ignored by both the police and the defense attorney at the time of trial. So it was, I think, the combination of those two in Fred's case that made it such a powerful um, opportunity for the DA's office to agree to relief. So this might be too wonky, um, but... What you just raised is the idea of a case that's a sort of in and out, just a bad mistaken ID case. But there are other circumstances, it sounds like, where you can have a mistaken ID with some corroborating evidence, but once you take the ID out of that equation, it's unclear whether or not the case still stands, right? Um, And so I wonder if you could talk about, I know you just argued a case up to the SJC, the Massachusetts like highest court. and they came down with a potentially new standard for examining innocence cases that looks at sort of more of the totality of the case. Um, Could you talk about that new standard or potential new way of looking at innocence cases and what the promise of that is? Sure. So the case you're referring to is um, Commonwealth versus Victor Rosario, and I was one of two lawyers who represented um, Victor along with Andrea Peterson. Um, 
that was a case in which we, um, unlike Fred's case, we did encounter significant opposition on the part of the prosecution. They opposed our motion. We had a lengthy evidentiary hearing. Um, they appealed the successful the allowance of the new trial motion, and that's how we ended up in the SJC. Um, and what 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 the SJC did in Victor's case that was so profound is building on a number of other cases they had decided over the previous couple of years. They uh, affirmed this idea that at at root, our standard for deciding whether to grant post-conviction relief, Rule 30, is about whether justice was done. And so um, the, they, what they recognized is that there are going to be cases where um, the actual error, um, the actual source of injustice uh, is doesn't fall neatly into one of the categories we've thought of as a sound basis for post-conviction relief. So, for example, ineffective assistance of counsel or newly discovered evidence, that sometimes uh, evidence falls into the into gray regions that don't neatly get packaged in one of those categories, but that the court has a duty to ask the broader question of whether a confluence of factors, whether a confluence of different things, maybe not any one of which would have been enough, together can demonstrate that justice may not have been done. I think one of the things that I like about that approach so much and that, that other jurisdictions are looking to Massachusetts for is that it, it encompasses what we've learned about the problems of um, wrongful convictions. Many of the exonerations around the country are cases in which there were multiple prior bites of the apple. You know, people tried and tried again with different single issues to challenge their convictions and each time failed. Um, you know, Victor Rosario had had three prior unsuccessful new trial motions. Fred had had one. Um, you know, it's not at all uncommon for people who, to have come into court on multiple occasions trying to challenge their conviction and failed. So the court being willing to say, even though there have been other attempts to challenge this conviction, we want to look at the whole picture of what might have gone wrong. So now that we've mentioned Victor Rosario, why don't we go back to the beginning of his case um, and talk about what happened, how did he end up in prison for such a long time, and um, how did he end up making his way to you? So Victor Rosario was charged and convicted of multiple counts of second-degree murder in connection with a, a really awful fire that took place in 1982. Um, the fire took the lives of eight people, and from the very beginning, it was—I mean, it was—it was, you know, by far the most traumatic fire that ha that Lowell had ever seen, and there was tremendous pressure to figure out who was responsible. The the investigation that led to Victor's conviction was um, was flawed on many different levels. The, the sort of the, the first flaw that we, that, that ultimately came out as sort of the core of the problem is that, um, the investigators who approached this fire immediately assumed that it was an arson fire, that it was set intentionally. And they made that assumption based on a number of very commonly held myths and misconceptions about how a set fire behaves that have in the interim since 1982 all been dispelled. By, um, by fire scientists, by, by people studying burn patterns and how fires behave. So the investigation began with that deeply flawed but understandable set of misconceptions about what you can say when you see a fire that's that intense. And, and it sort of built from there. Uh, when they interrogated uh, Victor, 
the next night, he was, as it turns out, in the throes of delirium tremens. So he was withdrawing in a very profound and um, medically dangerous way from uh, from alcohol abuse. And during the course of the interrogation, which lasted for eight hours overnight, he um, he completely lost his uh, his self control. He lost, you know, basically lost his mind. That that breakdown also was misunderstood at the time of um, of trial and of all of the sort of investigation in the case. It was interpreted by the fire investigators as evidence of his tremendous guilt. Um, so that became the narrative that the prosecution presented to the jury is that he broke down during the interrogation because he felt so bad about what had happened. Um, when in fact, what we were able to show many years later is that he was suffering from the classic symptoms of delirium tremens, which um, are, you know, it's been explained as an organic brain disorder. So it's essentially like your brain has stopped working. You are incapable of, of giving a voluntary statement um, when you're suffering from those extreme symptoms. So it was the product of misunderstandings about arson science coupled with an interrogation of somebody who was particularly susceptible to police coercion. And then um, on top of that, layered on top of that, was uh, the police reliance on a number of tactics of interrogation, which have since become known to cause false confessions. So you have this sort of trifecta of problems that eventually became part of a new trial motion that was filed uh, in 2012. Um, But Victor spent 32 years in prison. Uh, before he was granted a new trial and released in 2014. So for, you know, 32 years, he's knocking his head against a wall, not knowing if he's going to get out. Can you talk a little bit about how you choose your clients and how does that feel? Yeah, it's, it's not easy. I think, you know, the hardest part of my job in some ways is how many people I have to say no to. Um, because I think there are a lot of people who are in prison for crimes they didn't commit, but who, who don't have a, a path to showing their innocence. That um, they, there isn't, you know, there isn't physical evidence that can be tested or developed. There aren't witnesses who can shed light on what really happened. So that can be very painful. I, you know, only about ten percent of the applications we receive make it past that initial stage of looking at the application materials and, you know, a determination by me or my colleagues that, um, yes, this is a case that uh, in which we should assign an attorney or if it was referred by an attorney in which we should provide other sorts of resources, uh, maybe fund uh, the cost of an expert. But what I try to do is... I try to use what we know about the common causes of wrongful conviction. So we have the benefit of having studied DNA exonerations um, nationally, and we understand that you know eyewitness identifications contribute to 75% of wrongful convictions that have been demonstrated through DNA evidence. We know that flawed forensic evidence, certain categories of forensics, you know, hair comparison, fingerprints, footwear that those types of forensic evidence um, have also been associated with wrongful convictions. Fingerprints um, sounds like... Fingerprints, I always think, as this sort of gold standard of identification. So even that is susceptible to... 
even that is highly susceptible. Um, And in fact, there have been exonerations in Massachusetts in which people were implicated with fingerprint evidence. Sean Drumgold is an example of someone who was convicted based on, principally on fingerprint evidence that supposedly implicated him and only later exonerated when DNA testing showed that someone else was responsible. A lot of the forensics uh, areas that, that have come under criticism, under fire, are the problem is not that they're uh, that they have no value, but that their value gets overstated, or alternatively, that the people who are analyzing the evidence are influenced by information that has sort of domain irrelevant information, information that um, that shapes their scientific interpretation of evidence with information that shouldn't have any bearing on their um, decision. So you'll hear about cases in which a hair analyst is asked to compare a known hair to an unknown hair and is told that you know the determination of whether these hairs match is really important to the case or there's already been a confession or an eyewitness has already identified this person so that the analyst before they've even looked at this evidence is already being um, influenced by uh, other uh, other information about the case that shouldn't have any bearing on the scientific question of does this item match this other item. So are there any non-scientific causes of wrongful conviction? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that there are cases where the principal issue is some kind of, um, you know, informant testimony, for example. We've had cases in which uh, the the sole evidence that was used to convict uh, a uh, a client was incentivized testimony by um, either a fellow jailhouse inmate or um, someone who is sort of made a career for themselves of providing testimony for the police, um, and and that is another very common source of error that is an immediate red flag. I've heard from folks who are public defenders that one of the most annoying questions they're asked is, well. What you know? Do you ever have to represent people who did it? And you don't represent people who 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 quote unquote did it anymore. And I just wonder, like, has there been any sort of shift in your mentality or understanding of the work? The only shift that I've, um, I mean, first of all, I hated that question too <laughs> when I was a public defender in trial practice, and my answer was always, um, I have no problem with representing any client who I'm assigned to represent. And, and that's still, you know, I think that, you know, one of, one of the sort of common threads between my trial practice and my current work is that I always have it in my mind that um, every person who's in front of me is a human being and is not to be judged by the worst thing they've ever been accused of doing. It's also the case that even though I come to believe in the innocence of my clients. That's not always how the prosecutors view them. It's not always how the public views them. So because we handle non-DNA cases, because we don't primarily have cases in which there is a clear and obvious answer for who did commit the crime or for you know proof that, the, that it wasn't even a crime, um, I... I think that we're still occupying this sort of gray area where I I firmly believe that 
you know, Victor Rosario is innocent. And he has, in fact, been exonerated in the eyes of the law. But there is no declaration of innocence in his case. And that's often the situation, that our you know, non-DNA exonerations are, are viewed by some as, as less than because they don't have the same clear answers that a DNA exoneration can offer. And I also think that a lot, so much of what Innocence Program clients have gone through and the challenges that they face when they re-enter the world are equally faced by everyone who ends up behind bars. And I, I guess what I, what I think is important, what I've tried to focus on in my own practice, is that for whatever reason, you know, Friends and family outside of the criminal justice system, members of the public who don't, who aren't steeped in this work, find it easier to acknowledge injustice when it is seen through the lens of innocence. So a lot of the things that that are sources of injustice for all clients in the criminal justice system, we can talk about them more openly and in a way that's more persuasive when we talk about them in the context of innocence cases, because no one wants an innocent person to end up behind bars for something they didn't do. But in the process, we're changing how the system as a whole treats these things. So eyewitness reform benefits everyone, but it is occurring in the context of innocent people who've ended up in prison based on eyewitness testimony. Coming off of that, you have done a fair amount of advocacy and work around forensics reform. I wonder if you could talk about some of the movements in Massachusetts or more broadly to make our forensic evidence more reliable. Sure. So, you know, one of the one of the one of the things that I've been involved in and that's ongoing is an effort to pass a law that would establish a forensic science commission in Massachusetts, an independent forensic science commission in Massachusetts. And there is a law that is now pending that was sponsored by Senator Brownsberger. So the um, that 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 particular bill that's been proposed now would uh, achieve a number of results, including creating a mechanism to respond to the kinds of forensic error crises that we've been witnessing in our state over and over again. So the drug lab crisis, the... Can you just explain what the drug lab crisis is? So two different analysts who's um, in two different labs in Massachusetts whose misconduct has led to tens of thousands of people being convicted on flawed evidence. You know, different situations for each of them, both of them uh, very much still ongoing in terms of how the courts are resolving the cases. But in each context... Uh, part of what happened was that thousands of cases were tainted by um, either, in one instance, an analyst who was deliberately shading her analysis and skipping corners in ways to benefit the prosecution intentionally. And, you know, on the other hand, an, an analyst who had a drug problem um, of her own that uh, that affected her work and that ultimately tainted thousands of cases that she handled. So, you know, one of the things that an independent forensic science commission could offer is a vehicle for addressing issues that arise of that nature at a systemic level. You know, what we're seeing right now is the cost on all different levels of these cases being litigated one by one. Um, And my hope is that the other thing that a forensic science commission could do in Massachusetts is provide a vehicle outside of case-by-case litigation for looking back at cases in which there was a 
reliance on a form of forensic evidence that has since been discredited. So, you know, in Victor's case, for example, you have a prosecution that's premised on a set of assumptions about fires that turn out to be invalid. The Forensic Science Commission could be a place where a whole set of arson cases from that era are reviewed and reviewed as a whole to determine, is this, is this a, a broader problem? Is this something that we should look at an entire category of cases rather than using the resources in every single case that happens to sort of bubble up to the top and get brought to my attention or some other attorney's attention? You know, another thing that I worry about that I think a Forensic Science Commission might help with is are we only looking at the cases of people who are good at advocating for themselves? Um, what about people who have no voice, who are mentally ill, who have a language barrier, who are you know severely intellectually disabled and and isolated in prison? How do we ever? How do we know that there aren't people behind bars who who just don't have a voice to reach out for help? One of the things that struck me about both Victor and Fred's cases is the. Science at the time seemed so legit. And mm-hmm. I imagine, one, where there's things out there in our courthouses right now that people are citing as, you know, this is expert testimony, this is science, that is probably problematic going forward. But two, it sort of raise, it raises the question of how can we ever be sure? I think there's always going to be a tension um, when between the evolution of science and its role in criminal prosecutions. And I think one of the things that is now being recognized is that courts are particularly ill-equipped to act as gatekeepers for emerging sciences. That we've, you know, we've traditionally said, well, the, the you know, the judges can be gatekeepers and they'll evaluate whether um, a science is sufficiently reliable that the jury should get to hear it. And yet, um, we don't train judges in how to understand forensic sciences, and we don't train uh, prosecutors and defenders how to challenge it. Um, we do do some of that in Massachusetts, and that's been one of the areas that um, that I think the Public Defender's Office in Massachusetts has really excelled in, um, and there are other public defender agencies around the country that are similarly focused on, uh, you know, training attorneys to be comfortable enough with scientific topics that they are willing to challenge um, even forensic sciences that have been grandfathered in, you know, like fingerprint evidence. It's just, we've always had that evidence, so let's keep letting it in. Um, we, we, we are having attorneys who are better trained to, to find situations where that's not appropriate and where we really should be challenging that evidence. So to close, how are Victor and Fred doing now? Let me start with Victor, um, who has been out for about three and a half years. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that's really remarkable about Victor is that he lived his life in prison exactly the way that he wanted to live when he got out. So he um, was connected to the church community. He was married to Beverly and, and had started a nonprofit with her. And there are all of these ways in which the projects he started in prison have just seamlessly transitioned into his life in the world. It's very inspiring to see the ways that he was able to, um, you know, while he was in prison, 
he's described, you know, he has a hand up to the wall as far as he could reach, and Beverly was the, the hand on the other side of the wall, able to connect him with the world. And, you know, and, and now they're together, and they're, um, they're really able to, to, to continue the vision that he had when he was in prison. But it, it, that doesn't mean that he hasn't had a lot of areas of struggle. I think it's, it's profoundly difficult for anyone to um, spend as long as he did in prison and then come out in the world and have to adjust to all of the ways in which we're completely different from, we, from how we were before. You know, learning how to use a cell phone, learning, how to, um, learning again how to drive for him. Fred also is doing amazingly well. He's only been out for about six weeks now, and um, so his journey has really just begun. But he, too, is uh, extraordinarily open to everything that life is bringing to him. He's thoughtful about how he approaches every new thing he does. He's open to help from everyone, um, and he's really just trying to take in gradually all of the ways that the world has changed. Fred was, you know, he was a child when he went to prison. He was 16 years old, barely 16. And so I think that in some ways he's probably up against some different and more profound challenges than, um, than, than any of our other clients have been. But he is, he's just doing it with such grace and um, connection. And I think that's really uh, what's going to see him through, that he's so capable of forming deep connections with other people and um, accepting help from other people and just approaching life in a humble way. And I, I, I have no doubt that he's going to be, he's going to have a really good life. Thanks so much for listening to Voir Dear. I also want to take a moment to thank the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program, especially Brooke Hopkins and Anna Weig for their constant help and support in producing this podcast. I want to thank Poddington Bear for composing our theme music. And I also just want to remind everyone that the opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and my guests and do not reflect the opinions of the Criminal Justice Policy Program, Harvard Law School, or Harvard University. Thanks. Thanks.